uh, by taking a look at the latest out in the markets. And, uh, of course, uh, yeah, a very interesting day, I must say. Markets closing two uh, hours and 13 minutes ago. And uh, I must say, for all intents and purposes, uh, a red-letter day. Uh, a good showing on the part of uh, resources stocks, resource 10 index. Uh, the best of the showing there, driven by the Kumba Iron Ores of the World and many others. And, uh, yeah, also, I guess, uh, the RAND. Uh, breaching the 16 rand mark and i think it's hovering at around 1599 somewhere there last i checked akonam namleli portfolio manager 27 for investment managers good evening and welcome good evening i have one to your listeners this evening hey mandia zama mandia zama can't complain yourself no i'm good in this chilly and cold joburg hey, right? hey, yeah, yeah. and dark joburg that's the other dynamic <laughs> Stronger than now, but uh, Akona. Just before we get into the stories we want to discuss tonight, what do you make, I guess, of how markets fared on this Tuesday? Uh, I did mention resource stocks, uh, a good mm. showing on that end, but also a relatively good day for the South African rand. Yeah, so I think in the last, particularly starting the month of May, um, resources um, came under significant pressure. We saw the sell-off taking place in the first week of mm. May. Um, however. Um, this particularly this week, in the last two days, um, we've seen resources come back quite strongly. Um, so that's obviously showing um, some strong um, gains, uh, particularly in the sector, which has obviously had a hammering and also had a hammering also in the past few months. Um, so that came through quite nicely. Um, and also, it was also pleasing to also see some of the um, some of the retailers who have been reporting in the last week or so, particularly the likes of Pick and Pay, um, who reported today, but. Um, Coming into or closing off the Friday, um, there was a surge, particularly in the pick and pay price, um, which continued to Monday. Um, mm. However, today it was just, it ended flat. Um, and obviously, as you've indicated, um, the rand um, has been flirting with that 16 rand um, against the dollar mark um, for the past um, few days. It's quite interesting. I mean, that uh, I guess we're also seeing a lot of the strength on the resources side of things, um, and yet. I guess a lot of risk sentiment in the global marketplace is driven by the latest out of uh, what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, uh, which has certainly gotten a lot of the price of staples out of kilt. And let's maybe take a look at wheat uh, as our first uh, point of discussion. Um, I think many people will see over the next few weeks or so, we still yet to see it priced into our product markets in any meaningful way, aside from maybe what we're paying at the pumps. But uh, the worst is still yet to come in terms of what we're paying for bread, in terms of what we're paying for any grain-based, I mean, even cereals. Um, and uh, I guess a lot of people still shocked by where wheat prices are in South Africa. What's driving that, Akon? Yeah, so it's obviously been a number of factors. However, I think the latest um, with regards to the surge, with regards to the wheat prices, um, has been what the developments out of India um, who have imposed a ban on exports um, which has obviously stoked pressure on food costs um, and also rattled international markets. So the likes of the futures traded in Chicago rose mm. um, by 5.9% to about 12.47 a dollar bushel. And also wheat prices um, year-to-date um, have risen in excess of about 60% year-to-date, um, which has obviously been driven by a number of factors, um, such as the, the disruption we've seen with the Russia invasion of Ukraine. Um, we've come to obviously notice and also come to know that the two European countries, Russia and Ukraine, account for close to a third of the world's wheat exports. And also the news out of India um, in the last few days, which is the second biggest wheat producer um, after China, um, which had been obviously filling the gap in the last few years as decreased outputs from Ukraine um, had obviously taken a 
a dip. Um, mm-hmm. However, the the bumper harvest in which India had had in which estimated about 7 million tons in the last year, um, had been helping a lot of importers. Um, however, this new development out of New Delhi, um, then introducing this particular ban um, in order to just manage the overall security they've indicated um, mm-hmm. of the country and also to also support um, the needs of neighboring and other vulnerable countries. As if come to know, there's been a n- number of neighboring countries, particularly in the, um, particularly in Africa, um, who have been very much dependent on Ukraine and Russia mm-hmm. um, for very much of their wheat, uh, wheat export. Um, so um, New Delhi, obviously, coming through with... Uh, it, particularly with the statement and introducing this ban, and which has obviously rattled um, our markets also, which have also come and will be filtering through to the South Africans, um, yeah. particularly domestically um, in, in our country. Yeah. Two things maybe, Akwana, that uh, I find very interesting, uh, I guess, you know, not just in your response, but I guess in, in what has given rise to this now price spike in wheat. India's export ban follows hot on the heels of an export ban of edible oils, in particular palm oil, by the island nation of Indonesia. Now, that's the first thing maybe I I want us to think about and whether or not we ideally should be expecting this kind of trade action soon. And then I think the second element for me is um, how are prices of these things made? Because a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, well, you know, supply and demand, a big part of the supply is now gone. But um, some are also saying a big part of it is also the reaction in what you mentioned earlier, in futures markets. What what are these futures markets? And more importantly, what role do they play, I guess, in the determination of these prices or what some might call the discovery of these prices? Yeah, so the futures market is obviously where primarily um, a lot of these um, materials trade, um, such as the likes of wheat, such as the likes of bushels that trade um, with regards to the, the, obviously the one that I mentioned, the futures um, exchange trade in, in Chicago. Um, so they obviously set the price for a number of um, exporters on obviously where a number of countries can come onto that futures exchange, obviously to find partic- potential markets in which they can um, trade with and, and obviously um, get um, some of these products which they don't manufacture um, domestically. Um, so it, it, it's just an environment and it's just a hub where a lot of countries, um, and obviously where a lot of the, the prices sit, um, where a lot of countries come that, that don't export, that don't produce particularly these resources, um, come to obviously get, um, obviously new buyers and obviously new sellers are also discovered with regards to the futures trade. Um, however, with regards to, uh, the tension, um, that is obviously erupting, um, I think the UN, particularly the United Nations World Food Program, um, has indicated that this particularly um, event that we have come to see, particularly in the fragility um, of the global supply chains, um, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, oil and also the sudden shocks um, have obviously exposed um, a lot of um, the serious consequences, particularly coming to food, food security. Um, so um, I know particularly in the last few days, the U.S. Department of Agriculture um, had forecast that the global wheat production um, would drop um, for the first time in four years um, in coming to this year of 2022 and leading up to 2023. Um, so there is going to be a few sh- shortage, um, particularly with the events and the macro events taking place. Um, however, it's the fragility of the, jo- the global supply um, chain um, has also been unraveled and we'll just need to see how this um, unravels because I think the end user will be the one that is prejudiced in terms of paying the higher prices, yeah. Um, yeah. particularly for bread, particularly for oil, um, which has obviously soared to um, excessive highs. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I remember a few years ago, you know, even 
the mention of price controls would have had people in a tailspin. But I think Sisondele, Apungok, I mean, even just the example of uh, suspension of the fuel levy indirectly mm. is a form of price control because you're influencing how that particular administered price is is arrived at, right? So mm. all of the different parts of it that come together to come to that price. Um, and I think, you know, it, it might be worth thinking about this as well, you know, in the case of uh, many of these, um, uh, you know, agricultural commodities that are staples. I never look at uh, the SAFEX, by the way, which is like the South African Futures uh, Exchange. I think the last time I did so was probably uh, at school or at university. But I did today and uh, <laughs> took a look at like sunflower prices, soya, futures prices, wheat, white mm. maize, yellow maize, all of that, Right. And for me, what I guess was surprising or unsurprising in the context of our discussion now is that the most dramatic of price shifts that there has been just in the last, um, you know, 24 hours, if I can put it that way, um, in the South African futures market has been insofar as wheat is concerned. So Mm. not on soya, not on sunflower, not on yellow maize. And so it shows that something happening all the way out in India is also Mm. having an influence on how futures prices are set here at home. Um, yeah. And a big part of it, I guess, is is because of how sort of global some of these markets are. Yeah, so I think it'd also be interesting, um, you know, the South African Reserve Bank, NTC, is meeting um, the next few days and yes, they'll obviously yes. announce interest rate increase or decrease, uh, doubt decrease, but an increase on Thursday. Um, so it will be um, interesting what um, the governor, Mr. Kanyapo, does indicate, um, particularly with regards to some of the new macroeconomic variables coming that are currently unfolding that mm. were not there when they um, started to increase rates at, at the beginning of February. So um, it will be interesting, um, his communication, what comes out there. And also, as we know, that inflation targeting that they've always tried to keep it with in, is obviously at the high end at the moment and obviously gone above. So um, it will be interesting how the NTC um, is thinking about these um, variables and also um, if we'll get that um, 50 basis points um, increase um, in the repo rate on Thursday. Um, many market analysts are indicating it may be the 50. Um, however, going forward, it may be 25 basis points going forward. But yeah, it will be interesting to see the commentary and just how the committee members are thinking about some of these new variables mm. that are just um, unraveling as sure. we go on week by week. I like the point you've just made, uh, Akona, because, you know, often uh, a lot of credit active consumers in South Africa think, you know, this might be a bone throwing exercise or an exercise looking at a crystal ball saying, you know what, um, should we move 0.25% in one direction or in another? Mm-hmm. But effectively, there's like stuff online and maybe we must just find that link that explains like what they have to consider. They kind of have to mm-hmm. look at like electricity prices, you know, the prices of water at municipal level. They have to look at oil prices, where the rand is. Mm. And all of these things seen as a whole then give them that outcome. And I think if there's any fight we must maybe pick with um, the Monetary Policy Committee, it probably has to be around the kind of things they consider going into that. Because a lot of the sort of um, supply-side inflation that we've seen coming through is not because this economy is overheating. It's not because Mm. this economy needs, you know, higher interest rates to rein in consumer spending. No. Um, Mm. global supply chain challenges, Ukraine uncertainty, and now, of course, supply crunches that arise from export bans in places like Indonesia and out Mm. in India. So I hope I've said my own piece just to to lobby, uh, you know, the MPC. Guys, please, man. It's like, eh, like, interest rates, please, man. Yeah, so I I don't think it'll be good news coming out for a lot of um, 
people have mortgages or credit of any mm. form. So um, I think we'll just have to wait and see um, the communication on, on Thursday. But I think we all anticipate an increase. Um, it depends how much, 50 or 25 basis points. But I think um, we're currently thinking at about 50 basis points. Oh, I can't do it, man. Fuel prices are going up. Your charges on people's mortgages are going up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk uh, just briefly about uh, Elon Musk. Uh, and uh, I, yeah, I don't know, man. Every single time I see that in the financial news, Elon Musk is up. He's in the headlines. You know, over the last while, it has to do with Twitter. Uh, mm. But this time around, I saw actually the interaction out on Twitter, the platform itself. Uh, where, you know, he was saying, hey, guys, you guys shared with us a prospectus. You had certain variables uh, that you'd factored in there. And one of those was that only 5% of your user base are not like real people, warm bodies, but like bots and whatever. Uh, and uh, yeah, Elon Musk saying, look, I need to verify that or else I'm not going to pay what I said I was going to pay to acquire Twitter. Yeah, so I think um, the development came out or started coming out on Friday where um, Elon Musk um, on Twitter saying he was putting the deal on hold um, over concerns of that there were more fake accounts on the platform than the less than 5% that the social media company um, had claimed at the time. Um, so although he, he said he was still committed particularly to the transaction, um, I think it, had, it has um, fueled speculation, um, particularly in markets, um, on the direction in where he's going. Um, so he's, he's obviously indicating and he's claiming that he believes at least 20% um, of the accounts on the network That's are fake, lot, eh? and the and the proportion could be as high as ninety percent. But I think he's just um, exaggerating. ninety percent. But um, Musk has obviously challenged um, the um, Twitter executive um, mm. Agro um, on the platform. Even um, after the um, the Twitter chief executive um, did pl- publish a lengthy um, thread outlining particularly the methodology behind its estimate um, with regards to how they even come to the five. And five percent um, user base, but I think what actually prompted what prompted this, um, you, you you may ask, um, and I think um, the last few days, particularly the beginning of the month, um, um, Musk latch, has been obviously latching on to the issue of fake accounts. Mm. Um, after Twitter, um, obviously with regards to the regulatory filing this much, um, repeated a, obviously indicated a warning that um, that, that they, there may be an estimate of may not accurately represent the actual number of fake accounts. Um, so this was obviously what they had uh, filed in a regulatory filing, um, that this could be obviously higher. Um, however, Musk is obviously latching onto this particular issue now um, on the fake accounts that um, could potentially be higher than the 5% that was disclosed. But I think we just obviously wait now um, in terms of what unfolds, um, because I think at this stage, Musk faces about a $1 billion breakup fee if he does walk away. Um, however, I think he also might say that he was materially advised um, with regards to the, the particular information that he was given at the time um, was not disclosed um, fully. Um, so he, if he, he obviously goes down that route um, and it turns out he's right that it could be as high as 9%, um, it could obviously escalate further. Mm. It could obviously explain um, and obviously could... Render the deal now at this point. So 20% is a lot, eh? Um, and I'm also, yeah. I mean, is this a typical example of an investor post some signal of interest now trying to sort of pick apart all of the information at, at a particular level of detail in this deal in order to get a much better and more favorable pricing of the deal than what 
had been earlier communicated? Or is this a genuine concern that if a fifth of your users are not real people, then you kind of don't have a platform? Yeah, so I think it's a combination of the two because I think um, what you've given at the forefront and I think the 5% was what was given to him um, initially and I think 5% you could um, stomach. Um, however, when uh, news unfolded that it could be as high as 20 or even 90%, um, I think it started raising a lot of questions. That's why he's obviously questioning and obviously wanting to know um, how they come up to this particular methodology. Um, but I think it's also important because there has been... Um, some biz, um, developments t- um, taking place where mm. Twitter has indicated that um, it plans to enforce the $44 billion takeover agreement with Elon Musk, um, particularly just hours um, after um, the Tesla boss uh, had declared that the purchase cannot move forward. Um, so they're obviously also communicating at, on Twitter, with the, obviously with regards to these transactions and communication. Um, so the Twitter obviously communicated that... Um, the completing the transaction, um, particularly at the agreed price, um, and that um, the price which has obviously fallen in the last few days, so the Twitter share price and um, just currently just above thirty dollars, um, has obviously fallen in the last few days with regard to the developments that have been taking place. But a number of people um, are set to earn quite big numbers, particularly with this transaction. Um, it says Goldman Sachs could be taking home about eighteen million dollars. Um, from advising Twitter and also sure. JP Morgan will make approximately $50 million, $53 million, um, according to the company filing. Sure, the money lawyers and these deals. And maybe, actually, let me just ask this because it might seem like a very elementary question to people who are in the know insofar as these things are concerned. Would you be able to like put an IPO together without those people? Like if you had a team of analysts and you came together and you tried to put a deal together. Would, would it pass without at least going to like a, an investment uh, a bank as your transaction advisor or whatever, or even a lawyer? I think it could, but I think particularly within this industry, the investment banking industry, mm. the barriers to entry is extremely high. So these guys uh, make up majority of the markets in, in terms of the space. Um, particularly in big deals such as this, because it obviously mm. requires um, a lot of um, human capital and resources and yeah. lawyers. If lawyers make this out of all of these transactions, uh, I, I think more than even shareholders. So um, they are obviously the leading market leaders, mm. particularly when it comes to this, and they've got their historical experience in a number of deals that have taken place. So um, as I've indicated, the barriers to enter are extremely high, so I yeah, think yeah. it will be difficult um, to obviously enter the space. Let's shift away from that and uh, go to China. Uh, we did go to India and got a, a quick sense of the export ban there. Uh, but uh, I find China always, I guess, an interesting space, uh, especially insofar as the regulation of business is concerned. They've been speaking about the shared prosperity idea. Uh, they started speaking about this a bit more and then we started seeing other things happening in the gaming sector, private tutoring, you know, Dibalandonina. And now mm. it seems the target is on the financial services sector. So some of these people we're talking about, the lawyers, mm. you know, and the investment bankers who make a l- ton loads on many of these deals. And they are raising something which I think might make, you know, many of the people who are crying about Neil Froneman's salary here in South Africa very, very happy is to say, look, guys, cap your pay. Uh, mm. This thing of you earning uh, disproportionately higher um, amounts of money and we can have a debate about what that might look like uh, compared to say poor 
migrants coming into the city from the urban parts of China is going to create the seeds for social unrest. Uh, surely that's mm-hmm. the thinking, I guess. What do you make of how it's uh, unfolding in practice? Many people in the market saying this is wiping off trillions in market capitalization mm-hmm. from China. It's affecting the ability of Chinese firms to operate across the globe. But uh, what do you make, I guess, of what it means for China's domestic policy and uh, the challenges of managing a billion or more people in your nation? Yeah, so maybe uh, let's provide some context for some of the listeners who aren't aware of the story. So Chinese um, Securities Association um, is urging the country's brokerages to set up um, sound remuneration systems Mm. and also warning them against um, excessive short-term incentive incentives. Um, particularly that could trigger um, compliance risk um, for a number of these firms. Um, so they've indicated um, payments um, with regards to um, remuneration um, should be smoothed out um, in arrangements that take into account market fluctuations and also industry cycles, um, which is obviously what you've spoken about, about the Sibania story, because obviously what triggered that was obviously the, 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 the cycle particularly with regards to the, the rally that resources have taken place. Mm. Um, ha- however, I think the Securities Association is putting this in and is stamping its ground on this because it's seeing a lot of bankers, which is spoken about the likes of your JP Morgans and Goldman Sachs, um, who are hiring and expanding, particularly in the China region. Um, however, I think, as you've indicated, the Chinese slogan, which you've come to know as the common prosperity, has very much, which is... Um, more equal income distribution um, mm. has been very much what has driven Xi Jinping's common prosperity theme um, in his speeches. Um, so that has been driven very much by the, the Chinese government. Um, so they're obviously undertaking this initiative, um, particularly for some of the, the financial institutions that are coming into their country to operate and obviously um, provide services. Um, so I think, um, yes, you've indicated that um, investors have indicated that it's raising U.S. Um, trillions of dollars um, of market value. Um, however, I think with what the objective and obviously the state that um, the communism state that China is, it, mm. um, it's what the initiative and what has been driven by Xi Jinping of common prosperity, um, which has manifested itself, which you've named in, in, with regards to the, the tech crackdowns, regulatory crackdowns, and also we've seen the pressure campaigns against um, China's rich um, and entrepreneurs that has taken place in the last few years. So um, I think it's good for them because it, I think it's achieving what it wants to achieve for them. Um, however, um, the other markets um, who are more capitalist in nature um, may not favor it because it's not mm. something that is aligned to their interests and also aligned to their values because the lender is about values and morals and, 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 and a whole lot of things. Um, so um, I think it's an, it's, it's working for China um, for much we can see from the outside. We don't know what's happening on the inside. Um, so, however, externally, um, we've obviously, as you've indicated, we've seen local and foreign in- and investors um, very much skeptical of it and obviously um, mm. very much selling um, a lot of the, 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 particularly with regards to the stocks, particularly in the region. Indeed, and understandably so. I mean, I, I like the point you made. A lot of people, I guess, it's, for them, it's about morality, value systems, ideology, and all of those things. Uh, and I guess even in the Chinese case, it's exactly the same as even if you put that stuff before Joe Biden or you know anybody out in the UK. Uh, mm. But I, but I think it's interesting in the context. Just uh, you know, Akon, as we wrap up, it's interesting in the context of we know WEF is coming up soon, and there's this global offensive to try and deal with inequality, right? Mm. 
Mm. Uh, and it seems the Chinese have their own particular view. Now, of course, it will have its own kinks and their other underlying political issues that we might not be familiar with. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, it seems like they are saying a big part of how they will deal with inequality is by heavily regulating uh, business activity, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, in some instances, not too different with what the United States is saying in their own antitrust work insofar as their regulation of large platforms, Meta, um, you know, Alphabet, uh, all of these players. Um, so I'm quite interested in your views on that, that yes, while they might be singing off different song sheets, it does seem, though, that the mechanism to try and get more equitable outcomes or better or more competitive outcomes seems to be the same, the, the same type of tool. Yeah, but I think, it's, it's, I think on this side, it's obviously different because of the two political regimes. Um, mm. I think... Um, where it's a, the U.S. obviously more um, liberal or democratic um, government, whereas on the other side it's, a, it's, it's the complete opposite. So I think in the U.S. it, be, it would be more difficult um, to initiate such um, such stringent rules and mechanisms. And sure, sure. with regards to the tech regulations that um, they have been trying to enforce um, for the last few years, um, the tech unfortunately has run ahead of them, so mm. they're obviously trying to play catch up with regards to the regulatory issues that obviously unfolding currently. Yeah, Akona, let's leave it there for tonight. As always, a pleasure catching up with you, and uh, I wish you all of the best. And uh, be safe. Advertise one dim, but I guess that's what the situation calls for. Thank you very much to you and your team. Akwanam Lamleli there, a portfolio manager out at 274 Investment Managers speaking to us tonight. For-